Hey everybody, welcome back. If you're binging this show, well, thank you. If you are listening to Smart Guy, Dumb Guy for the first time, I'm your host, the Dumb Guy Christian Surge, and always with us in both spirit and supreme intelligence, our co-host, the Smart Guy, Johnny Morrison. Supreme intelligence really makes me sound like an alien or a supervillain, like Brainiac from the DC Universe. I don't hate it. I'm here for it. Uh, Hey, everybody. I'm Johnny, as Christian said, and uh, each week and now for the next 23 minutes or so, we're going to have a conversation about culture, current events, and politics from all sides of the intellectual spectrum. You know, you were talking about uh, the supreme intelligence alien. I did see something that seems like everybody's talking about in Utah, is that Mm -hmm. uh, monolith thing that was placed in the weirdest section of the Utah desert. Yeah, super fun, right? Just like that weird, like, crisp clean monolith like metal statue placed like right at the intersection of that too like the cliffs the way they are it's very it's it's very utah desert artist vibe you know it does Uh, when i saw the images where the valley was there and there was this metal piece in there and then if you scrolled in really really close you could see that there looked like there were some kind of like rivets in the metal object and it it Technically, I love conspiracy theories, and so I love thinking, hey, this could be 2001 Space Odyssey. This could actually be people looking in on us, you know, from, you know, hundreds of years ago. But unlike a few of the things I've seen, there were no, like, scientists reporting on it saying, oh, you know, we looked at the ground and, and, and the metal is, you know, not a metal we've seen before. Or, you know, they actually said it looked like it was placed there. So you, I don't know if you are just placed here with supreme intelligence or if you are from a other planet but sometimes the five syllable words make me think (laughs) could be for somewhere else Uh, well um thank you i don't know i don't know what to do with that yeah well i have some exciting news december 1st uh, me and my kids brooklyn and walker we wrote a song and uh for brooklyn's birthday we're gonna release it on spotify the band is called microchip and our first single is going to be short circuit Give it a listen to on December 1st. I may give you a little preview in the middle of the show today, but uh, we're stoked about it. Mm, cool. Yeah, I hope to hear it. Got a real, you got a talented family, Christian. Everybody's got, everybody's got skills. Well, thank you. You know, uh, Brooklyn, she plays the piano, Walker plays guitar. They sing and, and uh, dance and do all kinds of stuff. So I'm, I'm proud of them. I'm proud of this little track too. It's fun. It's kind of uh, 80s meets sync meets Daft Punk. I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off trying to uh, imagine what that sounds like until I hear it because <laughs> it feels like there's so many options, like a range of musical options, just like flooded into my head when you said those three references. Yeah, when I when I play the track for some people, they're like, "Ooh, that sounds very uh, stepmom." No, not stepmoms. What's the- chain smokers? I, I, I'm not mm. stepmoms. Chain smokers, and I've gotten <laughs> Justin Timberlake and. It's fun. Huh. It's a really fun tune. I, I hope that it, uh, you know, breaks the rock music, pop music charts and, you know, we get to make a rock music video out of it. So Here it is. This is the one. And now here's a sneak peek of Short Circuit by my family band, Microchip.
wish I wasn't right When you walked out the door You said I wasn't right So lost in my mind You said I'd be alright But I can't think anymore My mind is invaded You're so persuasive Great. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> well, thanks. I know we're all proud of it. Go and listen to it on December 1st, this Tuesday. You know, when I was thinking about this model, back to this monolith, I do have to say something. About six months ago, there was this cylindrical asteroid, that they called it, that came into our, uh, not atmosphere, but into orbit. And when they started looking at it on October 19th, 2017, after it passed its closest point to the sun, they realized and reported that the front of the asteroid was different than the back, meaning the makeup of the material, and that the uh, front of it had some kind of shiny shape, and the back was emitting a different temperature. And that's like a hotter temperature. That's not typical of an asteroid. Mm. Then they witnessed it slowing down. Then they witnessed it changing directions. Then they witnessed it going out of our solar system at an increasing fast speed. Come on, sounds like somebody's somebody's on that alien on that alien uh, conspiracy theory. There were three TED talks on this asteroid, oh. not just one. Three. They had two scientists and one guy who was like, "This is a bunch of you know, bull." Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to look it up, it is called Asteroid Oumuamua. So it's spelled O-U-M-U-A-M-U-A. And it is a fascinating story. And, you know, it's just for me, I'm like, oh, yeah, those aliens. They came to check out the planet and they probably dropped off something and then sped away. So it's really cool. Uh, one of the only, quote, asteroids that ever have entered our uh, solar system with a cylindrical shape. So hmm. super cool to look at. Yeah, super interesting. So uh, a couple of episodes ago, we did a segment on cancel culture or call out culture um, that was requested by listeners. And the article that I want to talk about today was shared with me from a friend who a member of my staff actually shared with them. And I, I thought it was a really profound piece of journalism or piece of writing because it is about kind of like thinking of call it culture and, and pressing into something deeper and better. And I really like this as an alternative to some of the criticisms that we had about call out culture. And, um, the article follows this woman, um, named Loretta Ross, who is like a radical feminist, a professor at Smith college. And she is teaching students and classes to, instead of call people out or cancel people to call them in. Um, which is she defines as like the difference between doing something out of empathy and love, um, doing something for the sake of almost restoration versus doing something to shame, to unleash your anger, um, 
to criticize, to condemn, or to, in a lot of cases, punch down at people. Um, so this is, it's a beautiful article, and I thought it was like an, actually a really powerful alternative that still called things out, that still named injustice, but it felt like it did so in a way that extended empathy and grace and love and created something beautiful in the world. Um, you know, I, I briefly read through a little bit of it. It's sometimes I have, a, I have to be honest, I, I want to bring people in. And sometimes I feel like that subject gets a little stale for me only because I, uh, I feel like I'm talking about it all the time, or maybe we're talking about it all the time. But mm. what struck me about this article was the idea, instead of calling them out, calling them in, and I, I don't know if I have a lot of faith in the human race you know, like I think we sit here and say, oh yeah, that's the best thing to do. That's what we should do. We should call people in. But when when something really pisses you off, what's the first thing you do? You go find a meme about it or you laugh at some kind of Instagram thing that's, that is in the same bubble that you're in and you might repost it or you might go to Facebook and start an argument or you might complain to your spouse. So can we really bring people in? Like, can we really not? Like when somebody does something stupid, like a celebrity or whatever, we want to call them out. Mm. That's our culture. We can barely see past the end of our noses to, to, to have empathy in the first place. I think that's, a gen, that's my belief. I have a hard time sometimes thinking, you know, when you drive in California, it's like at every moment, uh, somebody's just thinking about getting there the fastest as they, they can and, and mm-hmm. whatever wake they leave behind them is none of their concern. And it's just like all they can see is an inch past their noses in their little bubble. So can we really call people out? So I don't know. That's that's my criticism, I think. Well, I think the thing that's beautiful about this article is that she, I think she would call that like your, your criticism and then she would show you. Like she has done it with former Nazis. There's a moment what? of her doing an interview with like people who defected from the KKK. What? Um, like she's been, she's been running it for a long time and then she ran experiments with groups of students at Smith College who like this was more recently and then has been doing trainings on it all throughout COVID. Um, but then, but she references, I love this. So she, so she took over um, the center for democratic renewal and was the program and research director for the center. And the center for democratic renewal was run by Martin Luther King's field agent, a guy named Reverend CT Vivian. And when she took over, he told her this, and I think this is a beautiful quote uh, that proves, I think that gets to the point of people having done this for generations before us. This is the quote. It says, quote, when you ask people to give up hate, you have to be there for them when they do, end quote. Mm. This is a person who marched in the civil rights, who was a field agent for Martin Luther King Jr., and then who ran an organization that monitored hate groups. That's what the Center for Democratic Renewal does. And yet this is what they're saying. So you're saying that her, her, her advice is you might hate the KKK, but when they're ready to give that up, we need to be there for them to mm-hmm. bring them into the fold. Yeah. Yeah. This is, she was telling the story um, about like, she was watching these folks who had defected from the KKK give an interview or something. And the man's wife, who was also a defector from the KKK was freezing outside. And so this woman who's like, inviting us to call in gave her her jacket and she said i just couldn't maintain that anger i couldn't maintain that posture forever when i was with them and so it's like here they are giving up the hate right and she's like yeah i was there and once i saw it like i was it's hard to hold that 
kind of anger and hate when you're with the person. Hmm. So when I say all that, just because you were like, I'm skeptical. And I was like, oh, I think she's kind of providing some examples. Well, I, I don't, I don't know. I know plenty of people that even when you're ready to give up, they now want to just nail an extra nail into the coffin. Yeah, sure. And I think that's a, that's a very, very mature way to look at it. I wish we all could look at it that way. I don't know if anybody likes to have uncomfortable conversations, right? Mm-hmm. And we spend our lives trying to get away from uncomfortable situations. We try not to have them. When we do have them, I think the general public, we all treat it differently, but it's really, really hard to have an uncomfortable conversation. It's mm-hmm. hard to break up with somebody when when you know you should, but you wait until it gets even worse and worse and worse or they catch you doing something else. Or it's hard to uh, talk to somebody and give them uh, constructive feedback when you know that it's going to be a trigger for them. Uh, and that's just the small things. When we're talking about hate crimes or people who hate you because of a silly reason like skin color or uh, the way you believe or right now your political party, they you know they just can't mm-hmm. uh, like you. When they're ready to turn over, yeah, sometimes you're like, wait a minute, I've spent a lot of time defending and taking, uh, you know, like you've you've said so many offensive things to me. You've probably, you know, you've even done some things to me and now I've got to forgive you. I had an experience once. It was at a church uh, in uh, Orange County and they had the speaker come in and he was an, an ex-Israeli assassin. Hmm. And, but he didn't work for the good guys. Let's just say that. And he started telling me the story. I was sitting on the front row, front row. He started telling me uh, and the other people that were there, uh, you know, he had killed a hundred men, women, and children the last week before he became a Christian and that he had taught children how to be assassins. And he was responsible for the death of like, I don't know, five or 6,000 people. And then he found Jesus and I started, as he was telling me the story, my heart was starting to race and I started to sweat and I did not like this guy. And I was mm. like, I don't know if I want to hear all this. I don't know. And I'm, I feel like as a person, I can take a lot and very few things shock me, but something inside me was just set off. And I realized that if I believe in God and he believes in God mm-hmm. and he's spent now spending his life trying to convince people to follow Jesus and he ends up quote, being in heaven, and I do too, that I might be sitting at the table with this mass murderer assassin. Mm -hmm. And it floored me. It actually floored me. I actually had to get up. I went through the front stage where he was, out the side door and collapsed on the ground, uh, feeling like I was having a panic attack or like I literally Mm. couldn't handle it. It's not a very proud story. I'm not proud of it. Mm. But think about... Those times when you're just so angry of what something, someone or something, someone does to you. And then having to forgive them, having to call them in, I don't know. I think over half of us would say, no way. Put up our hand and say, I can't deal with this. Yeah. Maybe more. I think a lot more. Otherwise, we'd have probably a safer community. No, I think that's true. I mean, I I think what you're naming is right. And I think is also literally the center of the Jesus story, Hmm. right? It's funny, you you said uh, 
like sometimes you put your guard down and then people use it as a chance to nail another coffin. And, and, and the other word you could have used there is to nail the, to add another nail to the cross. Mm. Like Jesus is literally refusing violence at the, for the sake of those who are murdering him. And even as he's being murdered by the centurion, he offers forgiveness, which is like the person, the Mossad agent who's massacred, you know, 5,000 or whatever. That's the whole story of the faith. And I think you're right that it's hard. I think it's the most offensive part of the Jesus story, which is that the hero dies for his enemies. Absolutely. And when I think of that Jesus guy, he's a radical. Mm -hmm. He was such a radical. Think about the idea of, I, I might be going off on a little tangent here, but when the prostitute is there and they're going to stone her and he's like, you know, kill her mm-hmm. for her crimes, for being a prostitute because it was illegal. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. let's decriminalize this prostitute. And let's not. <laughs> now, I don't know if he decriminalized it in the city, but he's like, hey, cast the first stone, those of you who haven't sinned, and got up and said, hey, don't sin anymore. Don't do that anymore. Some people think that she actually gave up everything and followed Jesus. There's other kinds of stories as well, but uh, I don't know. He's a radical dude. It's a radical way of thinking that I don't think most people can get behind. And sometimes I can't. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's very hard. It's very hard. Uh, And that's why I really like this article by Loretta Ross. Like, I don't think that she's a Christian. I don't see anything in her um, writing that names that she's a Christian, but I, it feels like she's showing us how to do it. She's embodying it. She's witnessing to it. And she's giving us this like really powerful example that helps us form an imagination for what is possible if we were to live into that kind of radical way of sacrificial love. Um, Cause it's true of the Jesus story, but it's also true of, you know, this woman's story, Loretta Ross, which is a beautiful thing to see. What's well, really nice. I, I, I really like this discussion and I, I'm not upset at Loretta Ross. I, I think that what she's saying is something that we should all try to do. And I just think it's a really hard ask. Well, isn't that why Jesus says to follow him means to pick up your cross, which people make out to be about something other than what his cross was about, which is loving and to the point of death. So you want to be my follower. You got to love until the point of death, love to the point that your enemies kill you and keep on loving. That sounds like so much fun. Jesus did say it would also be a hoot. <laughs> he did not. <laughs> he, did, he did not. He did not say that. I think he probably was fun, but, you know, he didn't tell us that it would be a blast. Well, the article that I have uh, today is from the New York Times, and it's uh, an article that we sometimes hear a little bit about. Michael J. Fox, you know, mm-hmm. dealing with Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease, uh, dealing with other kinds of uh, issues that I've never even heard of, as well as then being successful, writing books, learning how to walk again, having successful spinal surgeries, all those kinds of things. But this article really struck me because he said, it's re- it can be really frustrating and, and an isolating experience to allow someone else to determine the direction I'm going and the rate of speed I can travel. So because mm-hmm. of his illnesses and having to be taken care of, somebody telling him what he can do, how he can do it, at the speed of which he can do it. Like nobody likes a speed limit. Nobody likes to be kind of held back, but he's, uh, has dealt with this uncertainty, like what is tomorrow going to bring with all this? And I know that people are telling me what to do and I can only move at a certain pace that my body can move, or I can only move at a certain pace that this back surgery can move. And I don't know what tomorrow brings. And so in light of all of that, 
I thought, what a relevant article today, because in light of the pandemic and the presidential change and uh, this really polarized world where we're having a hard time even figuring out who we are and what we should attach to our personality, there's this uncertainty every day. And so in the United States, most of us, middle class or upper middle class or even uh, upper class, we don't deal with uncertainty. We pretty much know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen. And then all of a sudden something like a pandemic happens and we all of a sudden run out of toilet paper, run out of other things. And so there's this mm -hmm. uncertainty. But the question I have is now that uncertainty is a part of our way of life, what do we learn from those who have this kind of uncertainty all the time? Hmm. That's a great question. The thing that stuck out to me the most about this article um, is Fox's resiliency. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the thing that we learn from people who deal with uncertainty all the time, like Michael Jake Fox, you know, suffering from Parkinson's, quitting, like acting, so much of his life being uncertain. But I also think about the people in my life who are that way, people with... Um, serious sickness or diseases or physical disabilities and the yeah. way in which that means their life is marked by uncertainty. And yet they are all so consistently some of the most remarkably resilient humans I know who have just like a strength of spirit that holds them. I feel like holds a sense of self through the things that are chaotic. You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. there's this deep sense of who they are in the midst of craziness and uncertainty and, and I, I, that's the thing I want to, to have in my own life from them. Yeah. I have a friend, his name's Clay Egan, and he's a quadriplegic. Clay Aiken? <laughs> yeah, he gets Clay Aiken all the time. I, I <laughs> met Clay Aiken once, have a picture with him. Uh, that's, that's such it. an old reference. It is. That's like, it's so bad. Like, that's not a good, it's, it's not. not a good joke. It's a bad reference. It's, but Ruben, he's like, what, second season of American Idol, a show that was on 20 years ago? Yeah, that was bad. <laughs> no. <laughs> this guy's name is Clay Egan, E-G-A-N, and he's a quadriplegic, one of, a, a good buddy of mine. And he has had a successful uh, business He's had, uh, he's been a successful athlete, rock crawling. He is uh, writing a book. Mm. He's had a, um, a television show uh, written after him, all kinds of things. And he has such a resilient attitude. That's, that's what got me thinking when you were talking about all the mm. people in your life that have that uncertainty. And the reason he has an uncertainty is he's like 36 years old. And mm. when he was like about 32, he calls me up one night and he said, Hey Christian, I just want you to know I have a kidney infection and, um, I'm probably going to die tonight. So I want to tell you that I love you. You're one of my good friends, best friends. And this happens to me once in a while. And so I just want to make sure that you know, if I die tomorrow, mm. that uh, you've been a good friend. And he said it just almost matter of factly. And I mm -hmm. said, well, do you want to die? He's like, no, I don't want to die. But he's like, I don't, this is part of the challenges that I've been given. I, I don't know from every kidney infection to the next, I might just die. Yeah. And like, who deals with that? And he deals with it with such resilience. And then the next day he calls me, he's like, hey, it, you know, the, the infection is gone. I'm coming back home. Uh, let's, nice. let's go hang yeah. out. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that we do have a lot to learn about resilient people. And, and when I think of my own life or uh, even my wife growing up in generational poverty, they have uncertainty. Uh, they had uncertainty in 
food and cars. And if something broke, then have the money to fix it. Like uncertainty was just a natural way of life. And I just don't think it is for most of us on the mm-hmm. planet, on, on the planet, most of us in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Until now, right? Mm-hmm. Like until the pandemic made uncertainty a universally American experience also. Um, which is fascinating. And it'll be interesting to see what that does to the American psyche or like you named like the middle class, upper middle class consciousness and psyche. Like, does it add a bit of resilience and wherewithal and uh, strength in the way that other crises have added that to other generations? I I don't know. That's interesting. But I, I just thinking about that point, I, I've been thinking about that a lot recently in my own like life personally, because I have these folks who are resilient. I hear like I love what you just said about your friend. And like COVID has been hard for yeah, all Americans. We are not uniquely struggling. Right. I mean, we had to close Creek at the beginning of the year and Tori lost her job for a second, which we've talked about. And then like recently, um so, like leadership stuff has been very challenging. And I was thinking like I, I need, I, I was, it's so funny you brought this up. I was literally thinking I need the kind of resiliency that I see in my friends Mm. who are, who are suffering from something like addiction or disease who can show up every single day and, you know, wage the same fight. Cause I was thinking about how much like my anxiety or sadness was like hitting me because of some, like just some like very intense criticisms that I've received, which is not the same thing as dealing with a disability. I mean, it hurts, but it's not the same thing. Right. Uh, but like, w- yeah, developing that resilient spirit in my own life feels like a, a goal of the, you know, remainder of the year and next year. I think you're right. I, I love that. I like that. Michael J. Fox says a really cool quote at the end of his article. He says, optimism is informed hope. You've been given Mm. something, you've accepted it and understood it, and then you have to pass it on. And I think maybe these two messages are a little bit intertwined. You've got Mm -hmm. the message of, hey, when people are ready to give up hate, let's bring them in. Let's pass Mm. on what we've learned to them. And hey, if Michael J. Fox can have optimism, of course he has a lot of money, but if he can have optimism and all those challenges, right? Money, when you have it, it doesn't buy your health or it doesn't buy your mm-hmm. happiness. Yeah, that's a that's a great quote. And I think it's a beautiful tie-in between the two conversations. Like, it is so difficult to engage in either. and But both require a resiliency of spirit. And I love that, like an informed hope that... It may we may not see the results of like caring or investing or extending grace, and I guess hope doesn't necessarily require uh, reciprocation at the end of the day. But there's an there's an informedness to it in that we know what we're doing and we know why we're doing it. Well, let us have some informed optimism and not sabotage our own happiness by being the haters and the the guys who lay down with a panic attack after they come face to face with the uh, <laughs> Israeli assassin. That's right. I mean, to be fair, the way you just said it right there sounds actually very terrifying. It just does. coming face to face with an Israeli assassin. I think it's appropriate to have a panic attack in that moment. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. That ends our episode of Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. Have you left us a review? It really helps more people find the show. So please do it. Scroll all the way down to the bottom and say something nice. We'll give you lots of likes and heart emojis. Visit smartguydumbguy.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. 
You have been listening to a Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy production, a podcast exploring culture, current events, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. See you next time.